0: Hi, I'm Elin Miller, and this is Everyday Reconciliation. This podcast is a hands-on look at reconciliation. What it means, why it's important, and what everyday actions non-indigenous people, like me, can take as part of this national project. As you can hear, I'm a settler. I live in Ottawa, on the traditional unceded territory of the Nishinaabe Algonquin Nation. The climate crisis is top of mind for many these days. Of course, some people have been concerned about it for longer than others. And in Canada, it affects some populations more than others. In fact, we've known since the 1950s that the Arctic has been a sink for toxins produced elsewhere on Earth, particularly for persistent organic pollutants or POPs. Today, I'm joined by the author of The Right to be Called, Sila cloutier Sila has served in many public roles as an Inuit activist, most recently as international chair for the Inuit Circumpolar Council. But her real accomplishment has been helping to put a human face on climate change and showing the world how the Arctic can be a model of sustainability for the future. Unasakut, and welcome to the show. Meik. Let's start a bit with your background, Sila. Can you tell me a bit about yourself and how you grew up? Yes, I was born in uh, a place called
1: Old Fort Chimo uh, in Nunavik in northern Quebec. And my humble beginnings are there with my very small knit family who lived around the Hudson's Bay Company post where most people were the community members were still out in outpost camps most of the time because my grandmother and my mother, both single women uh, with children, uh, couldn't be out there um, as much. So they were doing domestic work for the Hudson's Bay Company, and uh, it was a very small post where people would come in during, uh, during their times of bartering, you know, with the Hudson's Bay Company, mm-hmm. bartering for food and ammunition and so on. And uh, in the summertime, people would come and pitch their tents for the summer as well uh, during that season. And so my humble beginnings were traveling by dog team, uh, the first 10 years of my life, and uh, canoe in the summertime. And we would be hunting and fishing with my older brothers who were the men of the house, um, and, and that's the traditional humble beginnings. And I learned, I, I was, spoke only Inutitut, we all did, and uh, didn't learn any English until I was six when I started school after we moved across the river, uh, which is now, uh, it was the new Fort Chimo, but it's, for us, it's always been Kujuak, which means the big river.
0: So you grew up very traditionally. Oh, yes, very much so. Your food, was that also, um, you said your brothers, they would go hunting? And- yes, uh, and our food
1: always consists of a country food. In mm-hmm. those days, we didn't have a lot of store-bought food. And of course, that, that always costs money. Um, but my grandmother and mother working for the Hedges Bay Company would be able to bring home some store-bought foods. But most of the time, we still lived off caribou and fish and geese and ptarmigan. Well,
0: that and that was wonderful. our main staples. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm very healthy so you were raised by your mother and your grandmother
1: i was i was they were single mothers where in those days the white fathers didn't stay uh they left
0: and uh and so my both my real parents were my grandmother and my mother i read in your book when you grew up you had a small red tag with a number on what was that for
1: well that's what's called the disc number where uh we inuit across the country were given um, these E8 tags, mine was E8352, and, um, and then we were given to to be able to identify us as Inuit uh, in the country. And uh, the, the numbers in the beginning, um, you know, were about what part of the region of Canada do you come from? And E8 happened to be from the Angava region where I, I was born in Nunavik. Hmm. They were like dog tags, really.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, so everyone us... wore
1: those. Well, we didn't necessarily wear them all the time. But what we had to do was identify ourselves as, uh, with our E8 number whenever we would need to go anywhere official or, or to the health uh, centers or to the clinics or, or starting school. You know, our, our numbers always came with our name
0: mm-hmm. wherever
1: we went and whatever we did officially. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So in your book, you describe um, some of the changes that you saw in your community growing up from a very traditional um, community where you lived off the land um, and to become more westernized. Uh, Can you describe some of those changes? Well, the changes that happened were so very quick for
1: us as Inuit because they go way, you know, they go, of course, long before I was born, where, you know, we went from being very traditional living off the land and hunting and fishing as just our main way of life to then all of a sudden in the 1920s or 30s to become uh, the providers for the global market for fur. And we became fur trappers to meet that demand globally. Um, So things happened very quickly throughout that period of time. And then, of course, we were brought into communities um, uh, to be able to, because the institutions started to be built around the communities in the north. And so, of course, we were brought and coerced actually into communities at the time. And uh, school started, uh, in, uh, schooling was started institutionally. And so it was replaced. Uh, our, our incredible way of life was replaced very quickly. And our mm-hmm. incredible way of teaching our children for the challenges and opportunities of life were changed almost overnight. And so many of those changes occurred in a very short period of time, which moved on to other things, you know, like uh, land claims uh, or agreements that were made, which really, in a sense, I guess, you know, gave us some control. But nonetheless, we lost a lot of the, the uh, relinquishing uh, many of our rights through that process. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and so and then we've got, you know, the toxins issues that started to happen in the 80s, where we realized we were being poisoned from afar, Mm -hmm. Uh, country food was being poisoned. So we knew that globalization had hit us very hard in terms of not just it being a scientific or an environmental issue or a chemical issue, but one of human health for us, where our nursing milk uh, was laden with these toxins coming from afar through the weather patterns that were making their way up into the Arctic and into our food chain.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: then of course, climate change, you know, so all of these remarkable changes, and as well as the historical traumas that very few people know about in terms of, you know, the the forced relocations to the high Arctic in the name of sovereignty, uh, the, the animal rights movements that really demolished our ability to be transitioning uh, in a transitioning time with the seal products that we, the, the byproduct of the subsistence hunt, you know, mm-hmm. selling pelts uh, really demoralized uh, our ability to make a living during that period of time. Uh, the dog slaughters, you know, the mm-hmm. 20,000 yeah, dogs that were killed during that period of time in order to try to coerce us into living in the community um which really again you know just brought down the the self-worthiness and dignity of our hunters to be able to provide for their families when Mm -hmm. they lost all of their dogs these were real traumatic events that really have you know that we still live today with the consequences of all of these things and then of course many of us were sent away for school i was sent away at the age of 10. Um,
0: and was that common then to be sent away uh it wasn't
1: it wasn't common so early no um lizzie and myself my friend we were sent away very young at the age of 10 we were one of the youngest in my region to be sent away so young i, I still today have not really dug up the reasoning behind how our parents were uh you know had had given permission somehow or were coerced into giving permission to send us so young uh, but so we were 10 when we were sent away for two years away from home in, in the Maritimes, and then three years uh, in Churchill, Manitoba, where there was a residential setting there for Inuit children in old army barracks that we lived in for uh, a good three or four years there. So that's,
0: then... that's, that's very far, that's far away. Yes,
1: most we, kids we, from we, your, did yeah. most kids
0: from your community go to that
1: school? Many did. Many did. Many from uh, Nunavik and many from Nunavut. At the time, we were just called Northern Quebec and uh, Northwest Territories. You know, this was before where Nunavut was uh, created, right. long before that. And so from those two regions, uh, we were sent, uh, you know, in a, on a charter in the middle of the night, actually, uh, you know, sent over to the residential setting where we would be for 10 months of the year.
0: Was um, that for high schooler?
1: Well, there was a Churchill Vocational Center within the building itself that was created specifically for Inuit children, and it was more vocational training that was happening there. Uh, but some of us who were more academically inclined were allowed to go to the regular high schools of the of that community of Churchill and Fort Churchill, and um, and so I was one of those that went to the regular school.
0: Mm-hmm. But we lived. That, we lived that in the hostel.
1: Um, I I think it just was more about, um, I don't know, (laughs) to be honest, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I I think maybe our academic standing somehow, uh, -hmm. when we were, you know, they looked at our records and thought, well, she's more in the academic stream. She can go to the regular school. But it was, it was not a choice then for anyone. No, 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 Mm -hmm. no. Uh, I mean, some, I think decided after they did try to go to some of the regular schoolings, uh, with, uh, with other kids, uh, preferred to be in the vocational setting with fellow Inuit. And, but we all lived together under the same roof in dormitories in these old army
0: barracks, as I said. And we were there and it was very strict, uh, indeed very strict. So you didn't have a choice, you were just put in, that, in either the vocational or, or the academic program? Yes. I think even my sister might have started trying to, to be put into the
1: regular schooling, but I think she preferred the the three-year uh, Churchill Vocational Centre Program, where they came out with a diploma to, uh, you know, they learned a lot of skills. There's no doubt about that uh, in terms of, um, of, you know, some, like, you know, the boys learned carpentry and electricity and plumbing and other things, and the girls learned home economics and cooking and, and some other, you know, and of course, there was some academics involved in that. But, yes, that's how it was during that time away from home very strict rules. We weren't able to speak our own language and we lost a lot of it. I certainly lost my own language having been sent away so young Mm -hmm. and I had to regain it all back in my later years. How did you do that? I moved back home and I, I started working as an interpreter of all things, you know, with the, the week that uh, the, the lots of the language that I had lost, but I wanted to be at the clinic. I wanted to be in medicine, right? That was my mm-hmm. goal. So I, I became um, an interpreter and assistant in the hygiene department uh, with a, an elderly French Canadian nurse. Who taught me a lot about vaccinations and hygiene and health and all of that, and then I moved into the clinic to become the interpreter for the doctors there, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I my I built up back my my own language and vocabulary, uh, and you know the elders and, and the older people were so uh, not uh, supportive, you know they wouldn't laugh they wouldn't they would just be very supportive in in telling me how better to say it, you know. Because they mm-hmm. knew that I had, in those days, everybody knew one another and everybody looked out for one another, mm-hmm. and you know the whole community looked out for you. And they knew that I had been away, and they knew that my grandmother had passed away while I was away, whom I was very close to. So they, they, they. i sorry, that must have been bit, hard. Were, it was extremely hard, but you know, I it it took me well into my 30s before I could actually grieve her properly um because i was so young when it happened and uh yeah so yeah they were tough moments i wasn't able to come home to to see her burial or be part of that uh, the grieving of the community so it -hmm. took me many years into my adult life to be able to do that yeah
0: and what motivated you to work on environmental issues you touched a little bit about that uh, initially um -hmm. well i mean
1: I've always well, well. I've always said, first of all, that I was I would never enter into the arena of politics, and um, and I did end up um, running for Makivik Corporation, which is our our land claim corporation uh, um, that protects the rights and interests of Inuit beneficiaries of Nunavik, and I decided to run the first time didn't get in. Second time I ran and I got in, uh, based on what we need to do for. The future of our youth and um and so that was my door into politics but i learned very quickly uh, in the the first few months that i don't think i would be running for a second term it just wasn't something that i felt was was uh was my path and journey but what happened is as i was representing our region and went to alaska for the inuit circumpolar council assembly which in those days was held every four years and the representatives would go there. I was representing my region. And I came out of that week elected uh, to mm. the International Office of Inuit Circumpolar Council, uh, where different regions were nominating me to, to run. And I said, no, I've already got my mandate with Makivik and I'm green at politics. And they said, no, we want you to run. And, okay. uh, and we want to support you in it. So, so I got in. I Sort of hijacked into it. Yeah. So I, I ended up uh, coming home with a second mandate, an international one at that. So I did both those, finished off the three years, doing both of them by driving from Montreal to Ottawa frequently and then doing the international work. And it was during that period of time that the, the United Nations uh, Negotiating Committee on the toxins issue, uh, the Intergovernmental Committee, Uh, which is global with many countries involved, was starting to negotiate after 10 years of developing the data, the rich data of these toxins that were ending up in the Arctic um, and into our own nursing milk of our mothers. uh, The 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 POPs. The POPs, yes, the persistent organic pollutants. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up, uh, you know, hit the ground running uh, internationally as the UN negotiations were just starting in Montreal. And I, I gave a, a keynote uh, address just before I think it was called the uh, uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility uh, Event just before the u n uh, negotiations Act actually started and and, and it, it just rung true for so many to humanize the issue. And put the human face to it, and and the rest is told in the stories, and and the success of that treaty, they stock the, which led to the Stockholm Convention, where we worked diligently as a co- coalition of northern peoples, not just Inuit, but the denny the Athabascans, the Métis, uh, and the Russian indigenous peoples, where we we were brought together, a, a, you know, a, the the uh, a coalition that. I was the spokesperson for at every one of those sessions globally.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: uh, and, and we reached an agreement that, uh, really just brought this issue to the forefront of, of it being an urgent health, human health matter for Inuit of the Arctic, as we became the net recipients of these toxins. Mm-hmm. And for us, it was an urgent matter of human health. And uh, they weren't the at ar- all produced in yeah. the Arctic. They were not. And and so uh, we made all of these dots and connections and we built up partnerships globally by engaging in the politics of influence rather than the politics of protest. And we were able to really bring people on side. Uh, But, you know, a lot of the work and the science had been built long before I came into the political arena and people not only in uh, you know, Quebec City and Health Canada, uh, researchers, along with working with our communities uh, and develop on creating committees that would look at these issues, really had done their work, you know, and built up that rich partnership and data long before I came into the political arena But I came in at that time when the negotiations were starting, and I ran with it. It was like a baton, you know, the Mm. the relay race, right? I grabbed it from the 10 years previous of the work that was done and ran with it and hit Mm -hmm. the ground running uh, in the political arena. And before I knew it, I was out there uh, in more ways than I had ever anticipated. And then, Mm -hmm. of course, you know, as that was a successful convention, we then as a small, you know, Inuit Circumpolar Council with limited resources, then we're able to focus then on the parallel issue of climate change that was happening.
0: Mm-hmm. And that An really, even bigger threat to
1: the Arctic. Absolutely. But both of those issues are very parallel because they're both about human health and cultural survival. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, yes, the climate change issue became a huge issue. And, you know, we, we are... I, I, as a leader, you always have to be thinking strategically about how else can we put ourselves on the map. And it so happens that there were, uh, you know, American uh, environmental legal teams that were already looking at this issue as a human rights issue. And they reached out to me and said, "Uh, we know of your work, your successful work with the Stockholm Convention, and we'd like to be able to sit down with you and discuss what we think uh, could really put ourselves and your people on the map. And so I went to Washington uh, with my strategic counsel, uh, Terry Fenge at the time. He's since passed away, uh, bless him. Uh, and we talked to these people. And, and I, because, you know, for us, that whole history of environmental groups and conservationists is not a good one. So we always have to be very careful to be able to think that anyone who we partner with is not someone that is going to end up, um, uh, you know, uh, not under, fully understanding who we are, and mm-hmm. and and not on a mission to save us either, and 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 all of that history that comes with it, we have to be cautious not to be sleeping with the enemy, so to speak, because of that in court, uh, that that very discouraging history that happened, you know, with Greenpeace and other companies and so on. So anyway, make a long story short. Talk to these people. And looked at what they were aiming to try to do with this legal petition uh, and and address it to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, linking climate change to human rights. And, you know, I went back home and I really thought about this and and I thought, this really resonates with me. I think this is what will bring us out into the world, even on a bigger scale. And to get people to understand that, of course, human rights, of course, it makes every, every bit of sense that, You know, our right to be Inuit as we know it is being destroyed and Mm -hmm. minimized as a result of the inaction of many big countries. And this happened to be the United States at the time that always found itself to be the odd man out, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and we learned that through the work that we were doing with the Arctic Climate Impact Assessment that I was very much a part of under the uh, the the umbrella of the Arctic Council that had been created in 1995. And so we knew just how much of the posturing and the political gaming that was going on with trying to, uh, you know, uh, uh, keep that assessment from coming out before a certain election. And, you know, so we knew the game quite well. And because of that, as well as the, um, the success of the POTS Treaty, we had that experience under our belt. So I felt at the time, because I was chair by them, the chair of the Inuit Circumpolar Council, which was representing all four countries not just canada but all four countries and i just really felt strongly that this was the way forward in really getting the world to see this and take notice That indeed, this is a human rights issue, that our Mm -hmm. right to our health, our right to to educate our children on that ice, our our right to safety, security, all of those rights that are already entrenched in international law were being minimized as a result of the inaction. And Mm -hmm. so moving forward with that just seemed very right for me. And so that's what happened, although the commission chose not to move forward with the Inuit petition itself they did ask me and my legal team to come down and testify the legal connection or the aspect of legal aspect between climate change and human rights. And we did, we went down and, and all of that is recorded and on uh, the earthjustice.org org in uh, San Francisco, on their website, if anybody's interested to read the petition and hear the testimonies and what happened, even though they chose not to go forward with it, uh, uh, it, it changed, I think, the discourse on the language of, hu- of mm-hmm. climate change as a mm-hmm. as a human rights issue, and yeah. it allowed for others to start to stand up for their rights as well as a result of climate changes and uh, you know the the big companies that were polluting uh, our planet.
0: Yeah, and it changed. Uh, didn't it change the focus also from um, you know we, you see a lot of or saw a lot of pictures of polar bears or um, yeah. you know uh, suffering from the climate change, but you put yeah. a human face to to, to the impacts absolutely, because you know in every
1: conference over the years, you know especially in the beginning, when I started to go out into the world on these issues. And you'd go to conferences, you'd go to these events, and all you would see or of the depiction of the Arctic would be polar bears or the ice. Mm-hmm. Never a human face, never mm-hmm. a human face to these issues. And so putting a human face to these issues was a daunting task. The world has come to know the Arctic better for its wildlife than its people. Mm-hmm. And, you know and oftentimes it's these big marketing companies that use you know uh, the Arctic as a kind of a romanticized way. Um, and, And so it was shifting that and making it a human issue, a human dimension issue. And I think that's why we were very successful with the Stockholm Convention, because we did humanize the issue and and uh, i remember one of the turning points you know as as uh, i then i was be- becoming a young grandmother uh, soon after that but talking about these issues for our children and the future of our children one of the big turning points that occurred during the the uh, negotiations with the pops treaty was when we convinced and and, and i think it was because of that fact that we were talking about that the, the head of Jeff, which was the global environmental fund facility at the time that was helping to fund the underdeveloped countries to find alternatives to these POPs, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and he announced on the floor and he and I became allies, you know, as grandparents and uh, he announced on the floor, he had just had a grandchild and, and bringing that kind of humanity to these issues really, I think brought people together. And I think that's really what's lacking with this climate change uh, issue and these negotiations that are ongoing now, uh, where there are so many more people vested in in, in, uh, status quo to begin with. They don't want to change the way in which they do business. And and, and there's no real heartbeat to these huge, huge events because there's so many um, people there from so many countries And so, to humanize it and put a human face on it is a really daunting task when it comes to these issues. And many people, you know, have not come to realize, I think, that the real transformations that have to happen in order for us to shift from that place where we just consider this a political or an economic or scientific issue to one of the human dimension is that people have not shifted their own attitudes and approaches towards it in terms of it being a real personal transformation. Mm-hmm. And you know what I mean by that? I mean, personal transformation is, is about how we shift our own spiritual transformation in addressing these issues from a really human level and if you're going there with just your intellectual ability you know and your role as whatever it is that you are in your title of your work whether you're a politician or an economist or a scientist then you're not looking at these real issues of how these shifts have to happen at a real human um scale in transforming how you think and Mm -hmm. if i may let me, let me quote you something that I have been saying for a long time now with the talks that I give. This is a quote from an author that I, I, I you know, have, have helped me, and I write about that in the book. Um, personal transformation can and does have global effects. As we go, so goes the world, for the world is us. The revolution that will save the world is ultimately a personal one.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: when you bring it down to that level uh, you have that chance of being able to shift and change the attitudes and approaches in how we we live, how we treat one another, how we treat Indigenous peoples, and, and really, uh, and how we negotiate global treaties. Um, mm-hmm. But yet, people don't go with that mind or that at frame of mind or frame of heart it, it, more more importantly to be able to try to shift the way in which we do business and how we can pull out of these unsustainable activities that are creating these problems in the first place mm-hmm. and i also know that if true reconciliation is to happen It has to happen at those levels. Even scientists today are starting to think in those terms of changing that scientists now have to transform themselves and, 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 and they need a a spiritual transformation themselves. I even quote, you know, not so long ago, I was, I was giving a keynote at the Arctic science summit, which was hosted by Portugal, a virtual event with 1200 scientists from around the world from about 37 countries And I quoted one of their own scientists who said this. He said that I used to think that top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, environmental collapse, and climate change. And I thought that with 30 years of good science, we could address these problems. But I was wrong, he said. And the top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with those, we need a spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. And I wondered... the scientists would take to that but they they lapped it up so i think there is this kind of opening that has happened in particularly here in our own country since the the recovery of the children at the residential school you know and there seems to be some opening of the heart and and where i know that things will take time but they will happen at the speed of empathy Mm -hmm. and they will and they will happen at the speed of trust The empathy has to be there to be able to fully understand what the Indigenous issues are all about and what they are rooted in, in terms of the consequences of the historical traumas, including residential schools. And they will happen at the speed of trust where trusting relationships can be developed um, Mm -hmm. from those places of heartfelt uh, uh, connections.
0: Mm -hmm. So do you You think this spiritual approach to... To climate change would that be more of a return to your traditional lifestyles and indigenous um, indigenous approaches to nature
1: absolutely i mean it, it is just so uh, real now for me more than ever and i think so many others that the you know we are finding ourselves in our own communities with along with the historical traumas that's happened to us that their search search for the answers lies in our culture. In other words, the suicides, the violence, the abuses that are rooted in trauma, uh, the solution that we need is our culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, The medicine that we seek uh, is really our culture. And so uh, because the way in which we teach our children about respect and and for one another, for the land, for our, our waters is all what the world needs. And so I think what the world needs is indigenous medicine. you know, what the world seeks is indigenous medicine, really Uh, indigenous wisdom as the medicine to be able to deal with all of these issues that we're talking about. Because, you know, most people don't come to understand just how much value, uh, even just when we talk about our country food, for example, you know, it's not just nutritional value. For us, it's cultural and educational value, where the character skills are taught on the land, the patience, the endurance, uh, to be bold under pressure, how not to be impulsive, how to be persistent, how to be focused and meticulous and respectful of all around you, how to develop your sound judgment and wisdom are the, you know, that's who we are. And that's what we teach our children to become strong. The emotional value, the connection to identity the grounding, the natural euphoria that we have when we connect to our family, to our culture, to the hunter, to our ancestry. The mm-hmm. spiritual value, you know, of being in silence as you prepare the food or, or clean the skins. The men in a yogic position, like, you know, over the seal hole in the winter on the ice for hours upon hours in a peaceful uh, position of meditation. Um, you know, all of these issues, a the community, no value. Uh, the powerful connection, the bond, the ceremony, the rituals that happen from the first hunt, building a confidence and self-worth of our young hunters, the medicinal value uh, is really to not to be underscored for all of these things, you know, and, and, and this conservation economies that are built on, on is the, uh, in my uh, humble opinion is to be able to move in that direction rather than in the direction of, of, of completely repeating again, Western society's way of, of economies, you know, where it's digging up our land that we have held sacred for millennia. Mm-hmm. Uh, why wouldn't we be able to explore conservation economies where our hunters are paid to guard and be the sentinels of those waters, And bring back their self-worthiness because they're so undervalued for their incredible ingenuity and their wisdom and their connection and understanding of how all of these things connect. So absolutely, I think um, this this transformational way uh, needs to be, I think, grounded in Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous wisdom and Indigenous values and principles for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. And in, in rebuilding, in all the efforts rebuilding in languages and cultures, how do you balance that with the modern Western lifestyle? Because, I mean, we, you touched on that in the beginning, the changes you saw growing up, and they were mostly negative, like the destruction of the dog teams and the traditional lifestyle with outposts. But there must be some benefits um, of the modern uh, lifestyle that you can use um to um, rebuild your traditional lifestyle, like Skidos, um, how do you How do you balance that? Um, well, first of all- Reconcile the traditional and the modern. Yeah, well, first of all, it's not either or. Uh, we're not asking
1: to be brought back into uh, only the old way, uh, because what happens is that these the, 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 the skills, the life skills and character building that I've just spoke to you about, in terms of what is developed on the land, are extremely transferable to the modern world in fact they are a requirement and we're finding that the kids that have had that mostly uh, with the grounding that they've had traditionally i certainly feel that with my own upbringing Mm -hmm. that if i didn't have all of that i don't know if i'd be here today Uh, it in fact it has helped me to become the person that i am today and in, in, on all levels of my being, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, um, because of that grounding that I received as a young child the first 10 years of my life. And so all of those remarkable skills uh, and the values and principles that are integrated within you traditionally stay with you no matter mm-hmm. what, what you do next in the modern setting. In fact, I believe they are a requirement Uh, For the younger generation to have so that they can withstand the stressful situations in the modern setting, and that they can see through a lot of these unsustainable ways, because they've had that grounding traditionally. So it isn't about either or, one builds upon the other. And, and so we're finding that the kids who have had that grounding are more apt to adapt to stressful situations and deal with them more effectively rather than taking their lives. And mm-hmm. as long as the drug addictions are gone from, 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 from and the healing has started. And so all of these things are extremely important because the Inuit holistic way of teaching our children for the realities of our hunting culture, as I said, you know, are not just the technical aspects of the hunt, which is how the world works, but they're about the character-building skills, which is about how you work. And how you work is just as important, if not more so, in how you're going to be dealing with life stressors of the modern setting. And so that, that holistic way uh, is really important uh, for us to understand those pieces. And, of course, yes, we are dealing with modern ways that uh, can also contribute to the the atmosphere but you know we would be the first persons to explore better sustainable vehicles skidoos you name it um mm-hmm. you know if they were if they were being built <laughs> where we ourselves don't have that capacity in the arctic to do that but we certainly would be the first to be able to buy into that uh, so that we can be part of the solution but but you know but you know in the world today we know that the arctic is being eyed as the next energy feeder for the world. We know that we hear about these powerful countries and we we hear about these powerful companies. Some of them are already up there uh, exploiting and exploring what, mm. you know. It's tempting it for some communities then too. Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. How can it not be when that, you know, there, there's been no jobs, uh, you know, that there, there, there's, there's very little for the many communities, members, to be making a good living up north, you know, and and for them to to have only that one carrot dangled in front of them, which is either resource dis, you know resource uh, extraction or oil and gas uh, exploration or you know many unsustainable businesses that pay very well when they're out there doing what they do. Uh, how can they not be tempted to do that? But that's why I'm saying if we can look at other ways and means in which the Arctic can do different differently and be a model for sustainability because after all these unsustainable activities are only going to make things worse to begin with for our world so why would we buy into that and be seduced into that because many of these companies around the world have destroyed indigenous lands around the world Um, And why would they treat us any different? Are they reinventing themselves for just us in the Arctic? I think Mm. not. And Mm -hmm. So we have to think very deeply about some of the balance that needs to be had with this. And and I'm not suggesting that we, you know, we don't do any form of development, but I'm suggesting that we be very, very cautious about, you know, the kinds of impacts it will have not just in our world, but the world. And, and to try to model based on our own values and principles a way forward that is more conservation economy oriented. Because mm-hmm. I think when there is a culture match to these programs and, and activities, they are better off for us at that very deep spiritual level because we hear about people working in these mines and they say it just doesn't feel right. And many of them don't stay either mm-hmm. as a result of that. Uh, and so, I think if we can have a culture match activities, and there are many that are started up, especially for the younger generation, who are becoming great filmmakers, jewelry makers, fashion designers, uh, performing arts you know it 's just remarkable, and those are culture match that don 't leave a footprint <laughs> they, yeah. in fact, they become the ambassadors of the Arctic and they become the voices and the and the faces and the talent that exists there with that generation as well. So there is a parallel process happening here along with the, the challenges that our, our kids are faced with, with the mm-hmm. social and health indicators I talk about. But there's also a parallel process with this, you know, 30, 40 year olds that are just really pushing hard to make a shift. And that, that is what I call the the culture match uh, activities and solutions that really can make a difference for building back the spirit of that younger generation and building mm-hmm. back the pride and the dignity uh, and the sense of self-worth about how beautiful
0: and strong um, uh, and wise our culture is. Mm, that's wonderful. And that can present alternative um, Solutions to developing and sustainable yes, yes. living, yeah. and and why not cottage industries?
1: Uh, you know, uh, rather than you know these multi-billion-dollar projects that are just going to make it worse for us in our homelands as well as make it worse for the planet itself. Yeah, and why would we be the ones you know who are most impacted be given just that carrot to to, to you know to lure us into that kind of activity? I just find it um, that it would not be the way forward.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a very strong point. Um, I'm at my last question to you. Yeah, um, yeah. and that's that's focused on how can individual Canadians contribute to reconciliation? Mm-hmm. Can you name three things or more if you need?
1: Mm.
0: Well, I think again, it's it's learn about these issues. Learn
1: about them from uh, indigenous peoples, indigenous books, indigenous teachers. Uh, lecturers, uh, the younger generation that is making their mark with documentary films. Uh, you know, if you haven't seen Angry Inuk uh, by mm-hmm. Alethea from Iqaluit, uh, please do so. It's about the um, uh, the, the animal rights movement, uh, but it really is well-researched and it encompasses so many layers of things that we're dealing with today. Uh, And then the the Grizzlies movie uh, is just a a remarkable one. Uh, There are documentaries about the dog slaughters that were made in The Last of the Howl from Nunavik by TNI. Uh, You've got lots and lots of writings today that are starting to to really uh, be out there about the indigenous world. And I think it's to learn. But also you know, once you start to learn about these issues, don't be on a campaign to, on a mission to save us, because that is the root of the problem to begin with. It's mm-hmm. to see, you know, and to learn further. And But it, it also is about, it It isn't just the responsibility of Indigenous peoples to teach this history. If If you learn about these issues and you get it, well, teach your own as well, you know, about, uh, you know, uh, about all of these issues. You know, if Mm -hmm. you've shifted your own attitudes and approaches, try to get others to shift that as well by teaching what you've learned from indigenous peoples about these issues. I think it's really important. Um, And, and to make these connections as well, is that learn what is happening in the Arctic in terms of its ice, in terms of, how the Arctic's ice and glaciers, in particular, and Greenland, um, are melting. And, and, and that, the Arctic's ice and glaciers are the cooling system, if you will, the air conditioner for the planet. It's breaking down. And, and to make that Arctic connection, you see now that people are having their own states of emergencies around the world. Well, you know, for 20 years now, I've been trying to signal this message that it's Arctic was the early warning. For the rest of the planet and it would only be a matter of time you would be living your own states of emergencies because as the arctic melts it creates a shift in all of the oceans and the ocean being the driver of climate change you know and and the warming that's happening the change in the salt content of oceans and so on all of these things are creating What we see today in terms of the fires, the droughts, the the intense hurricanes, the floods, all of that is connected very much to the breakdown of the cooling system of the planet, which happens to be the Arctic ice and glaciers. So there is a deep connection there between what's happening in the south. And what's happened uh, with what's happened in the North for a long time now. So learn about these issues, you know, not, not just in terms of the physical aspect of it, but also learn the human tragedies that have happened, not just in the Arctic, but of course the indigenous peoples across this country and in the entire planet. And that we've got to start to shift away from these unsustainable ways in which uh, to be able to do things differently and and yes and i think we've got to think about how uh we uh, deal with uh leadership uh learn you know vote for and 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 support those who know and who want to really make effective change and not just be performing politically Mm -hmm. Uh, and and the rhetoric of of political uh uh you know lingo uh, sounds right but there's no action behind that and i think the pandemic has given us a time to pause and reflect. And I hope that civil society, uh, you know, in spite of what government says can, can do or not do, I, I have that trust not only in the youth movements, and that's what gives me inspiration, is the youth movements that are all over the world that are standing up, but also uh, the fact that civil society, with or without their government, are making changes, you know, greening, greening houses, parks, um, you know, different ways in which they're doing and creating more sustainable businesses within their own municipalities, within their own cities, mm-hmm. uh, within their own uh, provinces. Um, and, and the same goes for the United States. You know, I, I think when they their president in the past was saying, well, you know, we're not going to sign on to the COP treaty. They said, well, with or without you, we're doing it. And that, you know, California and, and other states, mm-hmm. you know, I've been doing yeah. that for some time. So we don't have to wait for absent leadership. We can do it now. And I, I find my inspiration is on uh, some of what I, I hear on, on the national news on what our country is doing and what people are doing in their own cities. So I'm mm-hmm. encouraged by that. So I think we're going to get there. Uh, but we've got, to we've got to do it. And we've got yeah. to do it right and, and connect to indigenous ways and, uh, and connect to uh, the more
0: sustainable ways in that manner. Thank you so much. That was a very rich and engaging discussion and, and nice with an optimistic outlook for the future. Yes, we have to be. We have to be. <laughs> our children and our grandchildren depend on it. Thank you so much. Thank you. A big thank you to Sila Wat for joining us today. She's so right that the path forward for this planet has to be grounded in empathy, trust, and human-led change. The everyday actions, Sila suggests, come as no surprise at this point in our series or conversations. The first is to learn. Learn about these issues, learn about the human tragedy, and learn about them from indigenous peoples, indigenous books, indigenous teachers, lecturers, artists, and more. We have our marching orders from Sila on this. If you haven't seen Angry Inuk by Alitia Arnakuk Beril, watch it. She's also recommended the film The Grizzlies, an echo of the last howl. Second, Sila reminds us that once you learn about these issues, do not begin to think of it as a mission to save indigenous folks, Inuit or otherwise. In Sila's words, that is the root of the problem to begin with. Instead, take what you learned and teach your own. It's not just the responsibility of indigenous peoples to teach this history. You can share this episode with friends, colleagues or loved ones so that they can learn from this conversation too. That's all for this episode of Everyday Reconciliation. Thanks as always for joining me. Until next time. Everyday Reconciliation is brought to you by Rio Tinto in Canada 2020. The show is edited by Erin Reynolds and produced by me, Elin Miller, along with Carolyn Smith and Aisha Jara. The artwork was designed by Sylvie Leverier and the music was produced by Marius Miller.